Scripture. Almighty King and gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through the written, written word as well as through your creation. Please, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, so that we may hear your word this morning as Pastor Chris reveals it to us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the New Testament, the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, starting at verse 32 to verse 37. And you can find that on page 1697 in your pew Bibles if you want to read along. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that, they were, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the disciples called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. So last week on Pentecost Sunday, I asked the question, what might it look like for us to live as a spirit-filled people? And we engaged part of the the ongoing story of Pentecost, the day-to-day kind of gritty nature of Pentecost, as it played out in the city of Antioch, and specifically in the church that was formed there. And the last part of that passage talks about how in response to a prophetic word given in worship, the, the people opened up their wallets and were incredibly generous to help out for a famine that was coming. One of the questions that lingers when we hear that is how did they become so generous? How did they have such a a response within them that they, they could freely give and lavish their resources on others? This morning we're going to talk a bit about money and what money has to do with living the spirit-filled life. And specifically, we're going to dive into this passage just for a little bit, and then I'm going to highlight two other people not mentioned in this passage, but in the book of Acts, who begin to embody and demonstrate for us this vision of of becoming a generous people. As we talk about this, we're going to bump into two of our core values— we have five core values here at the church, and today the two that we're going we're gonna to hear kind of running in the background are these two, servant hospitality. And by servant hospitality, we, we don't mean just having coffee with somebody else, but a hospitality that makes room for people, that invites people in, whether they're broken or they seem to have it all together, whether they're trapped in layers of poverty or they seem to have all sorts of wealth. It becomes a place where we're welcoming others in that they can experience the presence of God when they're with us. The other core value that runs in the background of, of this text as well as uh, the examples we'll share in a minute is generous stewardship. 
And generous stewardship begins to put us in that posture that resonates with with God's promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless you in order that you become a blessing to others. And that promise to Abraham, which is fulfilled in Christ, also becomes a paradigm for how we respond to the resources God entrusts to us. That as God gives us resources, we are then called to become a people who give those resources for the good of others. What we begin to see in this Acts uh, 4 passage that Audrey read for us is is a community that has been radically reshaped about money. They don't see money as something that is proof that God loves them or that God has blessed them which often comes in our culture and and sometimes gets tangled up in that prosperity gospel. If God loves us, he's going to bless us financially and with all sorts of resources, and we can run down that trail. But in this passage, they see that God has blessed them in order that they might participate in a very specific way with the blessings God has trusted to them. They might participate in the coming of God's kingdom. And so you see this remarkable phrase in there that God has blessed them so richly and they are so generous with each other that no one in that community in Jerusalem had any need. They held everything in common so that there was not a single poor person in that early church. It's pretty shocking. It's pretty audacious and challenging for us. How can we live so that there are no poor among us? Three examples. The first one is Barnabas, who we hear about in this passage. Barnabas, that I've mentioned the last couple weeks, was a Levite. He was from Cyprus, so he was he was ethnically a Jew, but culturally he was not not part of that Jewish community in Jerusalem. He came from outside of it. And when he heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and as he grew in his faith, he got to a point where he said, I have more than what I need, and I'm going to be generous with it. And he gave that property away. He sold it, took all the proceeds, gave it to the apostles that they could use it to meet the needs of others. In many ways, that story of the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and says, what more do I have to do? And and Jesus says to him, sell everything, give to the poor, and come follow me. Barnabas does that, but instead of walking away sad, Barnabas enters into a fullness that is just rich and overflowing. And we we catch a glimpse of Barnabas again in Acts 11, where he's sent by the apostles because he has become such an encourager. He's found a fullness in life by giving away his resources rather than clinging to them. The next person that we encounter in the book of Acts who's really kind of modeling this type of generosity for us is Tabitha. She's also known by her Greek name as Dorcas. In fact, there's, through the centuries, been whole societies called Dorcas societies that have grown up all around the world, and and they really try to imitate what, what Tabitha did. She was, the text says, she was always doing good and helping the poor which means she had a posture where she saw the resources God had entrusted to her and she looked around her and said, who needs help? And she went out of her way to do good, so much so that it became her characteristic. Always doing good, always helping the poor. But then it goes on to tell us that she sewed clothes and robes for widows. And we might go, oh, okay, 
and just keep going. She was a seamstress. Widows in that culture would have been the epitome of the poor. Widows would not have had anybody around them to provide for them or care for them. Widows were the ones, the whole reasons the diaconate was formed, this idea of deacons was formed, because widows in the community needed the broader church to take care of them. They had no way of earning an income. They legally could not own property. They were in a place where they were, they were very, very vulnerable. But the fact that it says she sewed robes for them means she didn't just say, what do you need to make it through today? Let me get you some bread. She actually went after their dignity to try and restore their dignity, to dress them in a way that it appeared to everybody on the outside that they had a family that was well off, a family that cared for them, a family that looked after them. And in fact, the way that Tabitha engages is not just to say, what's your basic need and how do we meet it? It's to say, how do I restore your dignity so that you have a sense of being human? of having worth and value, of being treasured. Tabitha models this generosity not just to meet the basic needs, but to go over and beyond so that the heart is addressed, the value of the person is honored. A little while later, we bump into Lydia. Lydia is a dealer of purple cloth, and and purple cloth was the cloth that the royalty and the high-up elite class would have have bought. It was expensive. It took a big production to make, and and Lydia was one of these people. So I was talking with Brian Dykema about this week. He's like, she's like the Versace of that day and age. She, she She dressed the celebrities. She had money and wealth. And and the way we get a glimpse of how wealthy and how prominent she was, she was a foreigner. She was from Thyatira, the text tells us. But she owned property and lived in Philippi. For a woman, a foreign woman, to come into a Roman imperial city like Philippi and own property and run this big business, she had wealth And she had power and standing and influence in that community. She was a woman of great means. And yet, what we see her doing, we encounter her at the riverside with people praying. We encounter her as she opens up her home to Paul and Silas and says, come stay in my house. And we encounter her after Paul and Silas have been imprisoned, and it's that prison story where they're in prison all night and they start singing praises to God and an earthquake happens and the jailer's about to kill himself and then the jailer gets converted and after they're released from prison, Paul and Silas go back to Lydia's house where the church is being held. And not church as a worship service, the whole early church community being formed in Philippi, she's welcomed them into her home. The language there is is one of extreme hospitality that she's essentially nurturing and providing for the early church, which tells you the early church was pretty poor. And she said, I've got room for you. I'm not just going to do my share. I'm going to go above and beyond to make sure that this community thrives. Three people. Three examples. We're going to do something different this morning. 
something we normally don't do because this conversation isn't just one that I've been reflecting on and thinking about. This is actually a conversation that the elders have been in for a while and council as a whole. And as we've been talking about it as elders, we wanted to make sure that all of you heard from a couple voices this morning. And so not just me, but we're going to invite Brian Dykema to come up. Brian's the chair of our elders right now. And he's going to share a bit more about where do we go with this. And and in some sense, he's going to bring us back to this question and how do we live out this question as the people of God gathered here at First Hamilton. How do we become a generous people, similar to what we see in the book of Acts? How do we become this spirit-filled people? So Brian, come on up. Um, This is not usual for me, so I'm going to ask you to pray with me before I begin. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have been asked by the the elders and by council as a whole to come and talk about what this means for our church. And as I was reflecting on this passage and as I was talking to Chris this week, um, there came a temptation, I think, as we read this. And the temptation today is to think of these great acts, the acts of uh, Tabitha and of Barnabas and of Lydia, and to think of them in the same way that we sometimes think of the great miracles that accompanied Pentecost. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? The ones where Peter and John see the crippled beggar walking by the temple, and they say, look, silver and gold I don't have, but this is what I have. Get up and walk. Get up and walk. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that was, that's what they did. That's what those apostles did. The Holy Spirit was on them in such a way. They said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And I think the temptation for us is to imagine that we don't have that power. We can't perform miracles in Christ's name. And we can't, like Barnabas or Dorcas or Lydia, give that way. The Holy Spirit isn't that present with us, is he? That's the temptation. But let me ask you a question, a question that I've been asking myself. Is he? Is the Holy Spirit with us? We're a Reformed Church. We're going to be a little Pentecostal here, so I want you to answer it. Is the Holy Spirit here? Is the Holy Spirit alive and working in this church? Has our church received him? Sometimes. Is he at work among us? Is he alive in you? Yes. He is. He is. So what would it mean for us right here, right now, at the corner of Queen and Charlton, if we could say as we just did, yes, the Holy Spirit is alive and at work right now. What if he was as present with us as he was with Tabitha, or as he was with Lydia, or as he was with Barnabas? How would that knowledge, 
and it's actually not really even knowledge. How would that presence, how would that fire that's with us change us? How would it change the way we live our lives? Well, I think it would mean that the church at the corner of Queen and Charlton would be like the church in Jerusalem. It would be like the church in Antioch. It would be like the church in Philippi. It would be like the church throughout the ages, wherever the Holy Spirit is alive and at work. We would be, if we say yes to this, a people who actually practiced the habits of a spirit-filled people. That what it, that's what it might look for us to be a spirit-filled people. So what, what are those habits? What would that look like? Well, the passage Chris read this morning was a repetition of a passage that we heard just after Pentecost in Acts 2.42. These are the habits. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We said this, I said this the last time I was up here. I'll say it again. The apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayer. And it's those things that enabled them to receive the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that caused them to give so lavishly. So I'm going to ask the question again. Is the Holy Spirit here among us? So I think often when we talk about um, money, when you hear a sermon or you, you hear these televangelists, you think, oh yeah, they're talking about God and about church, but really they're talking about money, about lining their own pockets. That is all too real. In fact, it happens right in Acts. Uh, Simon, the sorcerer, he wants that power so that he can line his own pockets. So we, the church has called that stuff simony, and it's real. But I can tell you that there are no 1-800 numbers in this church. We're not asking you to call in with your credit card. Um, and I can attest from firsthand experience that Chris doesn't drive a Ferrari. He doesn't even drive a Jeep. He wants a Jeep. He drives a minivan or something like it. Okay? Nobody in this church is getting rich. You can see what Chris makes at our budget meeting. That's not what this is about. What this means for each of us is that when we talk about money, what we're really talking about is the church. And when we're talking about the church, we're talking about the state of our relationship with our Savior. We're talking about the state of our own hearts. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. In fact, there's a prayer that the church traditionally prays before the offerings, and it says like this. It goes like this. It says, All things come of you, O God, and of your own have we given. God, it's God's stuff anyways. And I think that the story, the, the horror story of Ananias and Sapphira that immediately follows this passage shows us this. Everyone knows the story, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sold a field like Barnabas, and they gave some of the money, but they kept some of it back. And because they lied, they were killed. They were killed. It's a horror story. But if you read the passage, you listen to what Peter says and what the real problem was. It wasn't that they held back the money. Peter says, didn't the land belong to you? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The problem 
for them was not the percentage of their salary or the percentage of the, of the price of the field that they gave to the church. The problem was this, and this is the quote from Peter, Satan has filled your heart. Brothers and sisters, Satan wants to fill your heart. He wants your heart. And he'll use money to do it. And we know that he'll use money to do it because he tried to do it to Jesus. The very first temptation of Jesus when he was out in the desert prior to his beginning of the ministry was this. If you are really the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan wanted Jesus, and he wants you, to think that bread, money, is all that really matters. There's a reason why we call money dough. You got any dough? Right? He wants you to say, I'm just going to hold back on giving this week. He's saying, oh, I missed giving last week. I don't have to make it up. You know what? Church is really like a service. If I don't get what I need from this church, I'm not going to give. But let me, let me ask you another question. Do we live on bread? Are we or are we not baptized people? Have we been saved by God, the God who we pray to every day to give us today our daily bread? So I'm going to read you something that has traditionally accompanied baptisms, and I think it's a strength for us as we know that Satan is trying to get into our hearts and to use our wallets to do so. And this is a question I want all of us to answer. It comes from the, the, the baptismal vows that the church has done through the ages, traditionally for people who are older, people who can answer. The question is this. Do you renounce Satan and all his work and the vain pomp and glory of the world with all of its covetous desires? Do you renounce Satan? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and desire to follow him as your savior? Good. Because that's really the only way we can defeat Satan. That's the only way we can set our hearts aright so that we can give generously as he has been generous to us. So I've been given seven minutes, and I don't know how many I've taken. Um, you know, the elders are always giving Chris a hard time about the length of his sermons. Uh, we, we, we really do that. And I was like, as I was thinking about it this morning, I'm like, oh, it's not as easy as uh, it might seem to keep a sermon short. But I'm going to start to end. And as we... <laughs> That's right. I'm always the loudest applause when you say I'm coming to the conclusion, except unless the preacher says in conclusion 50 times, right? But as we come to an end here, I'm going to give actually a couple pieces of practical advice, tangible disciplines that I would like us all to begin practicing as we begin to live into this life of grace and generosity. And I'm going to say it's necessary for us as a church to do our mission. If we don't live these disciplines, our church cannot accomplish its mission. Okay? We can't do it. We are people who don't live by bread alone, but we need bread to live. And if we want to share that bread with others, we need the money to do it. And our church does. So here's the first thing to do. Do an audit. How many of you have been audited? It's the worst, right? It's the worst. 
probably, it's, pardon? Every year, some people, that's the worst. It's terrible doing an audit, but it's pretty revealing. So as you go home this week, as you go home today, talk to your spouse or look in your own budget. And I'm looking at you too, you guys too. I know you earn money because, you know, if you're babysitting, you're earning money from me at least. I'm looking at you, Ruben. But if you're, if you're serious about it, do an audit this week. Look at your budget. Look at your monthly budget. Look where the money goes. Look where it goes. For some of you, it's going to go to school, and that's a good spot for it. That's a good spot for it. But for some of us, if you do what I did, you're going to find that, holy smokes, I spend a lot of money on beer. Maybe I don't need 24. Maybe I can deal with 12. Maybe it's Netflix. Who knows what it is? But as you're doing an audit of your finances, do an audit of your heart as well. Ask yourself, when you're giving, am I giving joyfully? Maybe you are already giving 10%. Maybe you're doing that. But ask yourself, am I giving that in expectation that the Holy Spirit will work? So that's step one, do an audit. Step two is to soak your giving in prayer. I think we sometimes think that money is something that happens apart from our prayer. This is the material stuff, that there's not a connection. But that's not true. Money and prayer, as we saw in that passage from earlier in Acts, those things are all together. Pray to God. Take it to God in prayer. The scariness that will come with you wanting to give more money to the church will need to be soaked in prayer or it won't work. So I'm going to leave you with a passage, a beautiful picture of how God's economy works. As Chris said, God's economy is not such that he's going to bless you with more money. That ain't going to happen. Maybe it will, but you've got to work hard. It's you taking your gifts. It might happen, but that's not the way the divine economy works. What is promised to us is that as you give more, you will find yourself not in need. You will give more, but you will not become poor. You will not be poorer because you give to the church. There are no needy among us. There should be no needy among us. So as we practice the habits of a spirit-filled people, of teaching, of praying, of fellowship, and of giving expectantly to God, what happens? And I'm going to close with this. It's a quote. And it's a prayer that I have, and I think the elders have, and the whole council, and I think all of us have for this church. What happens when you live like this? What does the community look like? Quote, They broke bread in their homes, bread in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And my favorite line, And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. Amen. Thanks, Brian.